0: Let's pray together. Father, it feels epic-making almost to end Romans 1 to 8 with an overview and prepare to move on at this juncture in our church when we're about to be two Sunday morning worshiping congregations, one church, One God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one vision to spread a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples. It feels weighty to me to try to say this message in one sermon. And so I ask for your help that the message of Romans 1 to 8 would perhaps do the work... It was designed to do this morning when perhaps it has not done it for four and a half years for some. And so, Lord, come and help me be here in power to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, to lift the veil and to give joy in Christ. Protect us now from Satan and all of his fiery darts. We lift the shield of faith over this congregation and hold fast to the promise that in overflowing anger, for a moment, you may hide your face from us, but with everlasting love, you will have compassion on us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to mobilize the church for his mission to Spain. Chapter 15, verse 24 says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. He'd never been to Rome. He didn't know these people. They didn't know him except perhaps by the hearing of the ear. And so, since he wants Rome to be his base of operations for the mission to the unreached peoples of Spain, he tells them what his gospel is. Oh, that all of our missionaries would know and preach the book of Romans. Oh, that we as a ascending church would know Romans and live Romans and Love, Romans, and thus send our missionaries the way Paul wanted to be sent by the church in Rome. That is, with a deep understanding of what they were sending, what message they were sending. The book of Romans is designed, especially chapters 1 to 8 and then beyond. The book of Romans is designed to help rich Americans stripped down to a wartime simplicity so that massive resources from our blessings would be available for the unreached peoples of the world. That's what all this is about. Helping us not get at home and comfortable in the world, but to know that we're strangers and aliens here and maximize our prosperity, not for ourselves, but for others. The book of Romans is designed as a mighty and merciful message in the mouths of missionaries, suffering missionaries, to break the powers of darkness among all the peoples of the world. So the book of Romans is the key to the peace of David and Mary Decker in Abidjan this morning. And those up in Buwaki, surrounded by rebel troops. The book of Romans, this massive chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, ivory coast, uprisings, nothing. That's what Romans is for. And it comes into our lives to help us be ready to partner with them, and lay our lives down with them here and there. Oh, I tell you, the more I meditate on the central truths of Christianity, the less a lot of things make sense in the world of Christianity. Life is so short. I said to Noel, I was sitting on the couch last night pondering, I've got to go to Bryan College and give some talks tomorrow down in Dayton, Tennessee. And I said, in a year or two, it will have been 40 years since I was a freshman in college. It took my breath away. I can smell my freshman year in college. I feel almost every feeling. I smell the mold in Elliott Hall. I remember the first time meeting Roland Neednoggle. It was like yesterday. I tell you, we're going to be gone very shortly. So what you going to do with it? I just can't believe how many Christians live like the world who have no hope for everlasting joy when millions are perishing here and there. Romans is about helping us change. So it's not surprising when we start into chapter 1, you might as well open your Bibles because I'm going to walk through all eight chapters with you and just look here and there. It's not surprising then that as he begins to write and states the goal of his apostleship he talks about the nations chapter 1 verse 5 we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations that's why he's going to Spain that's why he writes this letter that's why I'm preaching this series and this sermon. The obedience of faith. In other words, he wants to bring people to faith among all the nations, and he wants there to be sanctification flowing out of that faith. That's why you got a chapters one to five, and you got a chapter six, and you got a chapter eight, and you got a twelve to sixteen, because he's not just interested in what goes on in, inside people's heads. He's interested in what they do with their hands and their eyes and their arms and their feet and all their gifts in the world. He wants obedience to flow out of this faith all over the world so that the glory of God shines. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds, that is your obedience from faith, and give glory to your Father. It's all about the glory of God through the obedience of people coming from faith. And so we preach this message. It's about the nations. And then in verse 14, he says it again about his apostolic obligation. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. And lest we think the Jews are missing, look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first And also to the Greeks. So you've got Jews, Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish. This mighty, merciful message breaks through all national boundaries and all cultural distinctions and all educational distinctions. You can hear the flavor of the global, universal, multicultural impact of this book because it's in Paul's head. Obedience of faith for the nations. Power of God to Jew and Greek. I'm going to Spain. Oh, that there were hundreds of thousands of young people and finishers raised up in these days to say, I'm going to, and maybe Spain should be included still, and go with Romans. Oh, how crucial it is in our pluralistic America to hear this book and its unique, absolute, universal, global claim upon all religions. Christianity is not a tribal religion. Jesus Christ is not in the pantheon of gods. He is not lined up alongside Mohammed or Buddha or any other god. He is, as the Bible says, Lord of lords, King of kings. Sometimes we put those little phrases together as though they're some kind of meaningless title. They're not a meaningless title. It means he's the king over all kings. Bush is under Jesus. And he's the Lord of all lords. Satan is under Jesus. It's really important for us to see, especially since it's disputed all over the place, including in Friday's Star Tribune, again, and it will be again and again and again, in article after article, because of a post-9-11 cowardice, and because of a kind of pluralistic sense that you cannot, with any attitude but arrogance, claim that your king is the king of somebody else's king so we read on page A23 of the commentary section about the gathering of Catholic priests and American rabbis Catholic bishops and rabbis releasing a document entitled Reflection on Covenant and Mission, just type that into your search engine, you can read the whole thing Online Reflection on Covenant and Mission, the main thrust, the author said, was, quote, efforts to convert Jews are no longer theologically acceptable because the Jewish people already abide in covenant with God. Close quote. In other words... There is one way of salvation for Jews who reject Jesus, and there's another way of salvation for Christians who embrace Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I say it publicly. If I had time, I'd write another article to the Tribune. I don't have time to write enough articles to the Tribune. You write the article to the Tribune when you read things like this, or write a letter at least, and calmly, soberly say, this is false and devastating. To the mission of the Christian church, including the Catholic church, of all people. What a sadness that Christian bishops and leaders would say there is another way of salvation for people who reject Jesus as the Messiah. Just don't know him. Know him and reject him. And they are hidden for glory by another route. And that's what we should all get together and say today. You need to know Romans, folks, not Piper, Romans. You need to know about the national, multicultural, global, universal claim of the Lord of the book of Romans. Jesus said so plainly, when he was faced with the rejection of Israel and the embrace of the Gentiles, at least one centurion, he said, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom, the Jews who reject him, will be thrown Into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are texts that are never quoted in the covenants. So it's crucial, utterly crucial, that the universal claims of the book of Romans, this mighty and merciful message, be known. We're not dealing here with human opinion. We're not dealing here with human Philosophy or self-improvement program or tribal religion or some parochial and limited thing. We're dealing here with true news. It's not first theology. It's not first religion. It's news! Like headlines. Jesus Christ, Son of God, penetrates history, lives 30 years of spotless Perfection dies in the place of sinners, rises on the third day, proves himself for forty days, ascends to the Father, sits at his right hand, intercedes for the saints. News flash, clean. He will come again in glory. Be ready. It's news. And it's called good news. And if you read Romans 1 to 8, you can't miss how good it is. It just doesn't get any better than the great eight. So it's news. And to reject the news is to perish. And that's tragic. So he gets to his main point here. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is the thesis of the whole book. I am not ashamed of the news. The good news, the gospel. I am not ashamed of this news. For it is the power of God. That's why I call this message the mighty and merciful message of Romans. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone, every color, every ethnic group, every educational level. Everyone who believes it is the power of God to save them. Jew first, also Greek. Oh, let us witness to our Jewish friends. Let us not stand aloof, pointing to the folly of their documents. Let us love and witness and plead. And if perchance, like Paul, I might save some of my kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 17 Here comes the massive ground that he takes chapters to unpack. For in it, in this news, in this gospel, in these events that it portrays, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says his message is gospel. This gospel is mighty and merciful to save. It is the power of God to save people. And it saves by faith. You see that? For all who believe. And the reason it saves is because in it, righteousness, divine righteousness is revealed. And at that point, you step back and you say, what does that mean? And Paul says, I'll give you eight chapters to tell you what that means. What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Now, before he answers, he has to do something. Because right now in this room, there are probably people who are saying, saved, saved, saved. He keeps using that word saved. From what? For what? And Paul knew that in this multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-cultural setting he was moving into in Antioch and Athens and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and on to Rome, he knew they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Saved. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20... It's all about the meaning of lostness. The summary comes in verse 9 of chapter 3. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There's a power in this world called sin. And every human being in every ethnic people group is under it. Powerfully being crushed to hell by it. And it feels so good they can hardly believe it when you say that. And that's why we preach the gospel. Verse 19 of chapter 3 puts it another way. Every mouth is stopped. And the whole world is held accountable to God because of what the law says to Israel. Every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable. Or if you back up to chapter 1, verse 18, all of us are under the wrath of God. Sin, wrath, and accountability. That's the condition of every person in the world. Which is why the gospel is so universally relevant. Our condition is universal, and the salvation provided is universal. Now, here we come to the explanation of verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, only it begins in chapter 3, verse 21. The question we're asking to Paul's thesis statement when he said, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, because in it righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. And we will say, What? I don't understand. That's not clear to me what that means. And Paul knows that little, dense, concentrated sentence is not wholly clear, which is why he writes a book and not a sentence. And so here we are now at his explanation in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God, picking up the phrase from 117, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that's just another way of saying revealed from 117, has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and here it comes, the righteousness of God Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a demonstration and a gift of God for all who believe. You may have the righteousness. Through faith you believe, you get the righteousness. So the revelation of the righteousness is a giving and demonstrating of God's righteousness to those who believe because the law that they were trying to keep, they could never, ever It's called justification, right? Verse 24 of chapter 3. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he moves from a demonstration or a revelation or a manifestation of righteousness to all who believe. And then he calls it justification in verse 24. And then he puts the foundation under it, which is the death of Jesus. So here's the problem everybody has in the universe. Jew, Greek, barbarian, wise, foolish. The problem is we're all sinners. We all have a rebellious heart against God. We all are guilty and under condemnation and wrath. And there is no hope that in ourselves we could ever get right with God. And so God gets right with us by sending His Son and taking our sin... All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when Jesus was crushed under the cross, he was crushed under the sins of everybody in this room. I pray you will see that. Verse 25. God put Christ forward. As a propitiation, that means a wrath remover, an anger remover, a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in the divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And He's now passing over your sins. And he can pass over your sins in righteousness because Christ bore those sins. And therefore, he is just. You see this in verse 26. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a message no other religion in the the world has. That the Son of God came into the world and died. Bearing the wrath of God and the sins of the world so that all who believe in Him would escape that wrath and be free from those sins and have everlasting life. There is no other religion that comes close to a message like that. Which is why Christianity is not alongside other religions like, well, we have a God and you have a God. We have faith and you have faith. They totally leave out the Gospel. Christ crucified. In our place to bear our sin, to absorb his wrath, to reject that point where God intersected the world and history so that he might save us, to reject salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's a very precious gospel and I plead with you not to reject it. So Jesus' death is the foundation of our justification. And verse 28, are you moving with me? Chapter 3, verse 28, makes crystal clear, as he has made clear two or three times already, that it is by faith and not by works. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There's nobody in this room that can do enough works to make a recompense for one sin you've ever performed, let alone all of the hundreds and thousands of sins you've performed, which is why if salvation were by works, we would all be lost. Only one person did all the works he was appointed to do, and he did it in reliance upon his Father, and that was Jesus, and that's why he can be a Savior for us. Now, don't miss something at verse 28. Having said it's by faith, And it's bought by Jesus. It's not by works. It's by Christ's obedience, not our obedience. Look what he does in verses 29 and 30. He's back to the world again. He can't hardly stay away from his global vision. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles, the nations also? Unless anybody in this room begin to feel kind of privatistic, kind of, we've got it. It's kind of our thing He just blasts at that kind of mentality. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the nations, the Gentiles also, since God is one. And therefore, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, once he has hit upon the fact that it's faith, it's not anybody's ethnic distinction, it's not anybody's religious performance, nobody is at a disadvantage who hears this gospel. To put their faith in Jesus Christ. And only that way are we saved and united. So there's this global dimension that he keeps coming back to. It's a message for all. Chapter 4. What is he doing here? He's simply taking Abraham as an example, and he spends the whole chapter saying again that justification is by faith apart from works, and he uses Abraham to demonstrate it from beginning to end of this chapter. Verse 3, Abraham believed God believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And what he believed, you see later on in the chapter, is a future-oriented faith. He was looking for it. He didn't know how it would happen or how God would do it. He couldn't see Jesus. He was just putting his faith in that someday God would do something that the ungodly could be justified and God still be just. And look at this perhaps sweetest of all verses for ungodly people. Verse 5. To the one who does not work, But trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice two pairs. It isn't work, it's faith, and it isn't the godly, but the ungodly who receive this righteousness. He says it as baldly and as starkly as he can. God justifies the ungodly. It just doesn't get any more shocking. Because the Old Testament says a judge who justifies the ungodly is an abomination. That's why it took such a stupendous act of sending Christ and making sure that all the judicial issues were settled in the absorbing of the wrath of God and the sin of the world on an infinitely valuable and perfectly law-fulfilling Christ. In that way, he ceases to be thought of as an abomination and becomes a Savior. Chapter 5, he begins verse 1 with the summary, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as he has his summary on the table, he introduces suffering. Then he's going to pick up suffering again in chapter 8 and deal with it big time. Verse 3, rejoice in tribulation. And why can you rejoice in tribulation now that you're justified by faith and have peace with God? It's because God will take that and He'll work patience with the suffering. And then He'll work approvedness with the suffering. And then He'll work hope with the suffering. This is chapter 8, folks. Preview. And then He argues in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5 with exactly the same kind of argument that he has in chapter 8. I wonder if in Paul's mind he wasn't really coming to a climax here, and then he thought of other things under God's leading that he should write. But here he's coming to a Romans 8 climax. Remember the arguments in Romans 8? I said it was an argument from greater to lesser. In other words, if he can do the great thing, then he can do the lesser thing. Romans 8, it goes like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the hard thing. Will he not surely and freely give us all things with him? That's the easy thing. You see the argument? Now look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's the hard thing. Justifying the ungodly is a hard thing. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If He did this for us now in the past, how much more will we be saved in the future? That's Romans 8, folks. Remember it. You feel it. Look at at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, this is the hard thing, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, that's the hard thing, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life from the... More difficult to the less difficult. God did the hardest thing imaginable in dying for us in Jesus Christ. Justifying the ungodly. And if the ungodly are justified, if enemies are reconciled, how much more will we just cruise right on through death and judgment into everlasting joy? That's the argument of this book. It was so massively difficult to do what God did at Calvary, that if He did it, and if I'm in Jesus by faith, I am home free if I suffer with him in order that I might be glorified with him. Death is a huge issue. And so death is taken up in chapter 5, verses 12 to the end. Where did it come from? And where does it lead? It came from Adam. Remember those verses? One man died and death entered the world. Verse 12. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so one man's obedience, this is verse 19, one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So death begins with sin in Adam, and then righteousness and life begin in Christ. And just as Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. And just as Adam died, Christ was raised. And so he calls Christ a type, or Adam a type of Christ. And we perished and were condemned in him, and we live and are justified in him. And since all men die, you see the universal implications of this again. A second Adam is not a second Adam for Americans, or white or black, or Baptists or Catholics. A second Adam is for the human race. The human race falls in the first Adam. The human race is meant to be redeemed in the second Adam. There is no other Adam needed nor possible. Chapter 6, I'm just going to sum up now in a few statements. Chapter 6, a huge problem emerged. If we are justified by faith alone apart from works, then let's just sin that grace may abound. And he takes a whole chapter to answer that question. And the answer is, if you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, you experienced a real death with him to your old man. And you have been delivered decisively from bondage to sin. And so the evidence of your union with Jesus will be a progressive holiness and a fight against sin. And then chapter 7. He cuts off any legal notion that says, oh, sure, you want us to be sanctified? Let's go to the law. Let's be a law-oriented people, and let's get sanctified. I'll tell you, in my study of the last four years, not many verses, if any, had a greater impact on me than verse 4 of chapter 7. We're almost done. I want you to end on the Christian life. Verse 4 of chapter 7 and verse 6. You also have died to the law. The law is not the way to get holy. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. When Christ died and you were united to Christ, you died to the law. Here it is. So that you may belong to another To him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. The Christian life is not an orientation on the law by which we bring our lives through some kind of willpower into conformity to that list. The Christian life is a death to that, a union with Christ who is our law and a fruit growing powerfully from within by the Holy Spirit. Which is why verse 6 says... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, yes, 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 we are servants, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Which takes us now to chapter 8. And I want you to see a connection as we close between 7, 4 and 8. 35. We've been a long time on Romans 8, and it's a beautiful chapter and full of hope and security for all who trust in Jesus. Romans 8 is all about our spirit-wrought, blood-bought, God-secured confidence and security and safety as Christians so that we can give our lives away to others, And he comes to verse 35 and asks the question, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, do you see from 7.4 how relevant that is now as well as in the future? In chapter 7, verse 4, it says, You have died to the law that you may belong to another. So picture this now in relation to verse 35 of chapter 8. You died to the law. So that you might belong, belong, have a relationship with, be folded into, be befriended by, be watched over, cared for, led by, loved by, held by another, him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And then he asked, and can anything separate you from that? No, nothing. So that's precious, not only... In death and beyond, it's precious right now because the key to the Christian life, according to chapter 7, verse 4 and 6, is not the law. The key to the Christian life is, I belong to a master. I belong to a lover. I belong to a powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. His spirit is within me. His cross is behind me. His hope and joy are before me. I'm His. That's the key to the Christian life. Growing ever deeper in sweet communion and confidence in a living person. Jesus Christ, present and future. So seven four says, when you were saved, you died to the law as a way of ordering your life. And you were united to Jesus Christ. And he now is your, your master and your might and your mercy and your model. You want your life to conform to Him. You want Him to be made much of in your life. Of course you're not going to lie or steal or sleep around. You want Jesus to be made much of in your life. He's your King and your treasure. He's your all. You can't go on sinning with Jesus at your side and on your shoulder and under your feet, hugging you every minute of the day, saying, With my blood I saved you. You can't sin against that Jesus day in and day out if He's yours. This is a new way to live. This is not a law way. This is Jesus Christ alive in you, around you, in front of you, behind you, loving you, being your treasure. And then he says, as he closes, And can it end? It can never end. It can never end. And now may the Lord go with you as you bask and live in the light of this amazing love. And all the people said, Amen.